You know, if you happen to get into the habit of reading the book of Proverbs, uh, a proverb a day, a chapter a day, and you looked ahead of this morning, you might have noticed um, one of, the, well, actually the first proverb or the first verse in chapter 14, which is today's date. I couldn't get any further when I was picking for today because it's Mother's Day. The wise woman builds her house, but with her own hands, the foolish one tears hers down. Happy Mother's Day, ladies. Build your house. <laughs> Today, uh, we're going to wrap up um, this. I've done a, kind of a mini-series on the family, and um, we're going to be in Jeremiah 29 today. And uh, the context for, for what was going on in Jeremiah was that uh, Jeremiah was this guy who preached. He was called by the Lord to, to speak on his behalf in one of the very toughest seasons, periods in Israel's history. The nation had been pretty much ripped apart and, um, and it had split in two. And every mother's um, worst nightmare, the family was ripped apart. And in this case, the nation of Israel was literally ripped apart. It's a family. Got to be a big family, but it got ripped in two into two different nations. The northern nation, which was called Israel, and the southern nation, which was called Judah. Anyway, so this, this whole nation was absolutely ripped apart. Families were ripped apart, and uh, this conquering nation um, known as Babylon um, had come into Judah and absolutely pillaged Jerusalem, and in and, 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 and the pillaging and in, in all that, they had carried away the nobility, the, the, the most educated, the, 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 they had carried away the nobility, the young nobility, so all the young men and young women that um, would have been the leaders and so forth got carried off into captivity, a lot of people. Men and women carried off, and um, and that, and it was in that time too. The one of the people who was carried off and, and that was lived under that circumstances we would know as the prophet Daniel. There were some pretty notable people there, and um, this is completely a um, rabbit trail that I, so I won't go down it. But many th- people think that that Daniel became the the kind of the the beginning of what you and I hear at the Christmas time as the Magi who traveled. Okay, so that's a whole different topic. I, 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 I'm very intrigued by that possibility. But a lot going on there. Daniel was there. And so Jeremiah was, was this guy who was, who was wanting to be this faithful pastor. He writes this letter to the captives that are in Babylon. They've been carried away, and he writes them this letter. And now, although the letter was written to them, by application, this letter is for you and me, too. Okay, so there are things in here that the Lord is speaking to you. And, and uh, th- the people then were living in a very, very dark day. And um, it was terrible. And um, it, it, it's, it's not a whole lot different, really, um, other than some freedoms that we have. It's not a whole lot different than our culture today. If you, if you take a good look at, at the landscape of humanity today, certainly in our country, you know, we're living in a day where God is not feared and um, you know, a day where there's just a lot of stuff that goes on that ought not to. And uh, a lot of wickedness is really rampant. And, and even today, um, even God's people struggle. There is so much oppression out there, and uh, there's a lot of compromised lifestyle. So, so it's into that kind of a situation that Jeremiah writes this letter to these people who are captives. And we're going to pick this up in Jeremiah 29, starting in verse 1. Now, these are the words of the letter that Jeremiah the prophet sent to Jerusalem to the remainder of the elders who were carried away captive to the priests, the prophets, and all the people whom Nebuchadnezzar had carried away captive from Jerusalem to Babylon. Imagine what it's like. Okay, so these guys are captive, and they get this letter. Hey, 
Jeremiah, the prophet, has written us a letter, you know, so hey, let's see what, see what it says. Now, the next couple of verses uh, basically talk about how the letter got there and who got, who got their hands on it so forth. So I'm going to skip forward to verse 4. Um, Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, to all who were carried away captive, whom I have caused. That's interesting. I always get pause when I read that. You know, carried away captive, whom I have caused, to be carried away from Jerusalem to Babylon. And here's the word of the Lord to them through Jeremiah. Five, verse five, build houses and dwell in them, plant gardens and eat their fruit. Take wives and beget sons and daughters and take wives for your sons and give your daughters to husbands so that they may bear sons and daughters that you may be increased there and not diminished. And seek the the peace of the city where I have caused you to be carried away captive and pray to the Lord for it, for in its peace, you will have peace. For thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, Do not let your prophets and your diviners who are in your midst deceive you, nor listen to your dreams, which caused you to be dreamed. For they prophesy falsely to you in my name. I have not sent them, says the Lord. So they had preachers, they they had churches there that were not speaking for God, just like we have present today. For thus says the Lord, after 70 years are completed at Babylon, I will visit you and perform my good word toward you and cause you to return to this place. Now, here are the verses that I especially want us to perch on this morning. You might know them already, verse 11. For I know the thoughts that I think towards you, says the Lord, thoughts of peace and not of evil, to give you a future and a hope. Then you will call upon me and go and pray to me, and I will listen to you, and you will seek me and find me. When you search for me with all your heart, I will be found by you, says the Lord. Man, what a thing to receive. Imagine receiving that letter. You're in captivity and... You get this encouraging. And, and I, we find a handful of truths in this passage that uh, we can apply to our own families. Now, some of you who have been following along in the series, you've been here for these, this whole series, you know, building a family, building a home God's way, you, you understand and you get it. Well, God's got to kind of do it. You know, unless the Lord builds the house, he who, who builds labors in vain, right? Okay, so, is, but isn't there something that I can do? Isn't there something that, some part I have? Is there some involvement I have in building my home that's going to please the Lord? Well, I'm glad you asked. Yes. So we're going to start with this. First one is this. Get God's vision for your family. Verse 11 says, For I know the thoughts I think toward you, says the Lord. Now, these captives could easily have thought, you know, has God forgotten us? I mean... It's too late for us. It, it, they could have easily have thought, there's too much changing that has to happen here. I mean, it's hopeless for me. And Jeremiah says to them, you know, um, and, and by application to you and me today, he says, I, I've been thinking about you. I have been thinking about you. And then notice he breaks down those thoughts that he has in verse 11. Thoughts of peace. And this Hebrew word, shalom, it isn't just Peace, like we think, the absence of, of, of you know, strife. It's, it's, it's something more than that. It's the complete state of well-being. So, so he's saying, God, he, he, God's saying, I'm already thinking about you. And he's saying that to every person in this room today, that God's thinking about you. Every person. God in his infinite capabilities it can think about and focus on every one of us at the same time and a whole lot more. And he's thinking about you today. And uh, here's the thing. He's not just thinking about us. He, he knows your exact situation. He, he knows every single thing that happened to you last week. And he's aware. And he's thinking about it. 
And he says, I, I know the thoughts that I think about you. And the first thing that he brings up is he's thinking about your peace. Your peace. Not only from, you know, relational strife, but he wants you to carry this complete sense of well-being. And that, and that comes to the one who lives a life to the best of their ability under the authority of God. Then he says, you know, thoughts of peace and not of evil. And I think he brings that up because he's thinking, you know, I know there's some hard things going on in your life. I know there's some things going on that you don't want to have happen. Things that, you know, you're going through that you're struggling with. But listen, he's saying, I think about you and your life, and I'm not just seeing the hard things that you face. You know, he's, I'm, I'm, I'm not seeing those things. I'm not just focused on those hard things because he knows what is going to be produced in you as you persevere. He's thinking about that. He's focused also on that good fruit. And that's why he says the next thing. He says, to give you a future. A future. Your future. God says, I'm not focused just on the stuff that's going on right now. I'm focused on where this is going to end up. This road is taking you to a future. And it's a good one. And then he says this last thing, and a hope. And that is one of the, I think, the, one of the best words in the whole Bible, the word hope. It's really a good one. I mean, the concept here is obviously that the best is yet ahead. It doesn't matter how bad things are today. Some of you, you know, we've been talking about family and how to raise kids and challenges with that. And, you know, you know and I know some of you, as we've gone with that, you're thinking, you know, well, my family is kind of like a mess, Terry. I, I, you know, we've gone through this divorce and we've got this hardship we're facing and I've made a mess of by doing this in my life and... My marriage isn't what I want it to be, and my kids are, you know, they're off track. There's so much that has to happen for these things to change. And, and hearing these different things have been a little bit overwhelming. But God says he's thinking about you and your future and your hope and the things he wants to do. And he's basically saying, I'm hope-filled. I'm not pessimistic about your tomorrow. I'm, I'm hopeful about your tomorrows. Some really good things. Listen. God's perspective is that that your very, very best days should be ahead of you. Did you catch that? You're not already on your downhill slope. Your best days, they should be ahead of you. They should be out front. It doesn't matter if you're 40 or you're 60 or you're 80 or you're 200 or... Well, if you're 200, okay. But I mean, your very best, your happiest, most joy-filled, promise-filled most fulfilling days, they can still be in your future if, if you're available to this, this thing that the Lord wants to say to you today about your future. And, 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 and the thing, you know, there's several things I like about this verse, but one of those is he says, I know the thoughts I think towards you. He, he's not just thinking, but he, there are specific things and, and he's some thinking some very specific things about Terry's future, his hope for Terry. Insert your own name there. What's God thinking about you? He's thinking some things about you. What are they? What's he thinking about you? He says, I know them. I know those thoughts. He's got some very specific thoughts about you. Take a minute and think about that. What's God thinking about me right now? He's thinking something. A big part of what he's thinking about you right now are thoughts of peace. Thoughts of peace, not evil. Thoughts about giving you a future and a hope. It says so right there. It's God's vision for your future. God has a vision for our future. Almighty God has a vision for your future and your family's future. For your future. 
And he sees these things that can and will happen if we'll do our part. He, he sees what could be. He sees what our family could become. So I'm wondering today, if you're able to get a hold of this God's vision for your family, the things he wants to do. If, if you're married, the things he wants to do in your marriage. If you're single, the things he wants to do in your singleness and maybe in your future if you're going to get married. You know, that's a God thing. But he sees those things. He knows the end from the beginning. He knows your tomorrows. So I'm nudging you kind of gently. I think I feel gently. Maybe this isn't so gentle, but I'm nudging you. You know, are you available? Are you letting God show you his vision for your tomorrows? Are you willing to grab hold of God's vision? Not yours, but are you willing to hold, hold, grab a hold of God's vision for your future? I mean, even if we think about a partial list, I just got a few ideas here of the things God wants to do in families. How about salvation? Maybe you have some people in your family that don't know the Lord, or they ought to, but they're not, there's nothing in their life today that reflects a relationship with God. And, and their eternity, their hope, their peace, that kind of, they're, they're up for grabs right now. Maybe God wants to do some saving in your family. I think so. Forgiveness. Maybe there's something going on and God just wants to get in there and fix something that you can't fix. Forgiveness. Reconciliation, which comes after forgiveness. Maybe God's seeing reconciling something that's broken somewhere. Love. Am I the kind of husband? Am I the kind of wife? Am I the kind of you know, parent? Am I the kind of sister or brother that the Lord wants me to be to my family? Yeah, well, Terry, that's kind of overwhelming. There's so many things. There's... You could come up with hundreds of things. Yeah, okay. So I'm just going to boil this down to three. And, um, and, and, and here's the first thing for us, for, for getting God's vision for your family. The first one is this, a vision of household salvation. First thing is a vision of household salvation. Acts 16.31 says, Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you shall be saved, you and your household. Great scripture. This scripture suggests there's a linkage of the salva- salvation of your loved ones and your willingness to embrace this truth. There's something significant going on there. I mean, it happened in my family when my youngest sister went to Sunday school and got saved, and she believed for the Lord. And then my mother went, and she got saved and believed for the Lord for her household. And one by one, the dominoes fell. Guess who was last? Yeah, and, you know, trying to understand this particular scripture, it's a little bit, you know, it's, it's led to two different, more extreme viewpoints, both of which are wrong. The middle ground is the correct thing here, but um, the two, I'm going to tell you what the two extreme viewpoints are. The, one, the first extreme viewpoint is this theology that says, you know, my kids are going to be saved by my faith. If I believe in the Lord, my whole family, you know, that's all it takes. My kids are going to heaven too. Problem is, that's not what the Bible teaches. The Bible teaches that, Every person will individually give an account to the Lord. You see that in Romans 14. And, and in Hebrews, it tells us it's appointed unto man once to die, and then the judge. It, it's a one-on-one decision. It's a one-on-one decision. So every person, and I wish we could believe for our families, and they would get saved. Uh, but that's not what Scripture teaches. The other, the other teaching, which is also false, and probably the one we tend to fall into more often, is this, uh, this idea that, well... Somehow my family member's salvation is totally independent of my faith. Totally independent. You know, the fact that I'm a believer has no bearing on whether they can get saved or not. And that's not right either. It's just absolutely not true. We have to understand that there is, you know, because I'm a believer, 
there's a proximity to faith that, 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 that goes among, amongst my loved ones. There's something going on there. In fact, the Bible teaches that God sees the world. He, he looks out at humanity, and he sees us in households of sort. I'll give you some examples. Did you know that? God looks at households. Um, here's a couple of examples. Exodus 12, the nation of Israel is about to uh, break out of, of Egypt. And if you've seen the Ten Commandments or you know the story, you might remember what the last plague was, the death of the firstborn, okay? So um, on the night, then this, this, this historical event drives what today is known as the Passover, okay? So on that night um, that um, that curse was going to happen, there was something specific that the children of Israel were supposed to do to be freed from that curse. And um, so was it, was it that each person had to anoint their bedroom doors with the blood of the lamb? Uh-uh. That's not what it was. The father of the household, if he was obedient to the Lord, was to paint the, out, the doorposts, the lentils around the exterior of the house and the household was saved. Here's another one. Hebrews 7, 11 says, by faith Noah prepared an ark for the saving of his household and his whole family got to go. Book of Joshua, there's a, a woman named Rahab who was a harlot and she helped the spies. You maybe remember that story. And because of her faith and her obedience to what the spirit was telling her to do and what she did, when the nation of Israel destroyed um, the city of Jericho, it wasn't just Rahab that was saved. It was her entire household was saved because of her faith and her faithfulness. And somewhere, God's plan for salvation includes our willingness to pray and to intercede in behalf, you know, to live a life before them. And ultimately, ultimately their, their willingness to respond to the ministry and the calling power of the Holy Spirit is what determines their salvation. It's ultimately their willingness. But we have a role. We've got to get away from this notion that says, well, maybe they'll get saved, maybe they won't. You know, I wish they would. And instead, begin to come before the Lord and, and, and with fervent, consistent, dedicated prayer, you know, calling out to God for the salvation of our loved ones. That's a vision of salvation. And, and listen, there is no family member who is so far removed from God. Does it matter whether they're in some penitentiary somewhere? Does it matter whether you have not heard from them in years and they're disconnected and you're estranged? They, there is no way they can get so far from God that his grace can't save them. And he may use you in his, as an instrument and he may not use you in, an inter, in, in some sort of interaction with them, but the Spirit will hear your prayers. And he will use your prayers. And we need to continually and consistently pray and call out to God for them. That's first, a vision of household salvation. You know, we pray for our mother or our father or our sisters or whatever, grandchildren. And don't stop working on this and longing for it and praying for it until God answers it. Okay, household vision. Second, a second, a second one would be a vision for family values. I want to just real quickly take a visit to last week's text um, and go back and put this up for you. Deuteronomy 6, verses 6 to 9. And, and it's challenging us to teach some specific things to our kids. Um, verse 6, And these words which I command you today shall be in your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children and shall talk of them when you sit in your house, when you walk by the way, when you lie down, when you rise up. 
You shall bind them as a sign on your hand, and they shall be as frontlets between your eyes. You shall write them on the doorposts of your house and your gates. God is serious about us teaching our children. Do you catch this here? You know, the idea here is, is it's not just that we occasionally have a class with our children. That's not what this is talking about. But we're supposed to be teaching our children consistently and constantly. You know, while we're on the way to the store, while you're out in the backyard doing a project, your kids are by your side and you're talking to them. You know, while you do life, you are leveraging the examples of life and how you train your kids. Things come up that you leverage those things as training opportunities. And the idea is that we have some specific things that we're trying to teach our kids. Rhetorical, don't answer this. Do you think in those terms? Do you think about, you know, if you're a public school, if you're a school teacher, you think in terms of your, your, your lesson plan. You know what you're going to teach, when you're going to teach it, what the order is. Do you think that way as a parent? It's a great example for trained and good teachers. They've thought through and they've got this lesson plan. Do you think that way? Or do you just get through the day? which is understandable. Are you proactive about this or are you reactive? Sometimes as a parent, I was proactive. Many times I was reactive. And we get there sometimes. It's probably unavoidable. You know, and the thing is that when we are predominantly a reactive parent, you know, we just, instead of being proactive, we can kind of drone on about less important things. You know, how many times do I have to tell you not to pick your nose? You know, <laughs> I mean, it's important not to pick your nose. Okay, but that's not what I should major on as a father. <laughs> There's a lot of things I could say right now, none of which the Holy Spirit will allow. <laughs> uh, so, <laughs> you know, so what are the main things that we're teaching our children? You know, what was your mom and your dad? What were they fired up about? When you look back, you know, was it eat your vegetables? Was it you have to always pay your bills? On? Th- those, are, those are good things. So if somebody was to ask your kids, what were your parents really fired about? What were the main things that they would not let up on? What were the big things? Now, before you come back and say the Bible, I'm going to suggest to you that that's too broad. This has got a lot of stuff in it. You have to distill this down for your children a little bit, okay? So, you know, what is it? What, what is it that if somebody was to pin your kids down and say, what, what would they answer? I got to this point in my preparation. It was kind of challenging for me. I mean, I have three children by, um, by birth, and now I have in-laws who are becoming my kids, and I love them just the same. But as I was raising my three kids... Um, I wish Lisa and I could have been a little better organized than we were, but we, we, (laughs) yeah, okay, but we, we were pretty serious about a few things raising our kids, so I said to Lisa, um, hey, we didn't have, you know, a, a sign until our kids were grown up, said, here's what we care about, you know. But I think our kids had some ideas. But what do you, what do you think there? So we kind of compared some notes. Here's what we thought we were, we were focused on as parents. Now, listen, I, this is what we were focused on. I'm not telling you we did a good job. I'm not up here bragging or anything. I'm just going to give myself as a case example. We thought we were, okay, so we thought, okay, we both agreed the number one thing was family. 
Loyalty to the family. You tell each other the truth. You're honest. You're protective. You're private. You, family. I would have been perfect in the movie The Godfather. Family, you know, kind of a thing. (laughs) Except for the murders, right? (laughs) Anyway, family, big deal to us. Another one that was pretty important was respect authority. Another one was we, in, we were intentional in trying to train our children to the skill set of learning to hear God's voice, which is different than willingness. That's another one to be taught too, but, but hearing it. Here's another one we taught them. Have fun in life. We felt like that was an important balance to this rigidity, you know, hear God's voice. We did some crazy things as we tried to teach our children to have fun. We had pre-planned intentional food fights. <laughs> we sat in a meal one time, and this was planned in advance, and we kind of intentionally ramped up an intentional verbal argument that increased in intensity until one of us picked up food and we started hurling food, <laughs> throwing food. I shouldn't say hurling food. So <laughs> we started throwing food at each other. And at first, our kids thought it was a real fight, argument, until they realized it was a family event. Okay, it made a mess. It made a mess. It did not mess up our kids. Well, <laughs> um, all three of my kids are in the front row. No, two of them are. Oh, second row. Okay. Thank you for showing up. <laughs> anyway, have fun in life. Another one that we, it was an important lesson to us was the quality of character. Strive for it in yourself and then make sure you pick it in the people that you spend your time with. If you're going to pick someone to get married to, make sure there's character present. It's an important lesson as a parent, as best you can. And then, of course, we want to teach them to learn responsibility. These were the things that we tried to do. Well, we did okay on some of those things. We made some mistakes and you know, other areas. I mean, we were parents. We make, made our mistakes and did our thing. But I was curious, and I thought, okay, I wonder what our kids would say were our hot-button issues. So I sent them all an email this week. Hey, what was it that mom and I, what were they? So it'd be interesting to get this. You could do your own self-report card. Here's what they said to us. One of them said, and this is kind of in the order they came in email. This is not by importance or who our favorite is, okay? <laughs> they over- argue over who is their favorite, but we will never tell them who is our favorite. But we have a favorite. No, we don't. We don't. <laughs> and this, listen to this. Don't manipulate. That wasn't on my list, but okay, we'll take it. Be kind. That was in there. Integrity, especially when nobody's watching. We'll take that. Get this one. This is a quote. Respect your mother. My wife! <laughs> I think I said that a few times. Respect your mother. She's my wife. Somehow that got through somewhere. <laughs> the importance of God's word. Here's another person. Respect mom. That's great for Mother's Day, isn't it? Respect your mothers. Respect them even now, no matter what. Respect them. They, they, they're respectable and they're in a spiritual office. Respect them. Respect them, mom. Okay. And respect mom and by extension others. Responsibility. Perseverance. Okay, so these, these are the things they said they thought we were really hot buttons for us. You know, y- you can throw that whole list out. You can have your own list, your own thing of importance. But hear me, you need something. You have Something that you are impressing upon your kids and those with whom you have a sphere of influence. You have something. 
It needs to be whatever it is with your children. It needs to be clear. It needs to be something you can articulate that, that your kids can explain to somebody else. This is what my mom and dad are fired up about. Because when they leave home, we want these things written on their hearts for life. I love my kids. And I just want this. I just want, I want the best for my kids. Leads me directly to the third thing. Okay, one, household salvation, a vision of family values. And number three, a vision of generational obedience. We just don't want our kids to know Christ. We want our kids' kids to know Christ. And their kids. And their kids. And on. It's a vision of generational obedience. Psalm 78 says this. says, Give ear, O my people, to my law. Incline your ears to the words of my mouth. I will open my mouth in a parable. I will utter dark sayings of old, which we have heard and known and our fathers have told us. These are the things my father told me. Verse 4, we will not hide them from their children, telling to the generation to come the praises of the Lord and his strength and his wonderful works that he has done. For he established a testimony in Jacob and appointed a law in Israel, which he commanded our fathers that they should make them known to their children. Okay, so here's one of the first one of God's rules about, about children. Everything God teaches you, you've got to teach that to your kids. Everything. Every lesson you are learning and have learned, you teach that to your kids. doesn't mean you tell them everything in your life. But you teach the teaching to your kids. You know, not just your kids, but everyone that the Lord gives you a sphere of influence, you, your physical kids, your spiritual children. Everything God teaches us, we've got to teach that. And here's why. Psalm 78, 6 and 7. That the generation to come might know them, the children who would be born, that they may arise and declare them to their children, that they may set their hope in God and not forget the works of God. There's probably not a single person in this room who's going to be alive 100 years from today. Probably not. The vast majority of the people in this room won't be alive 50 years from today. Many of us, probably me included, won't be alive 25 years from today. Yet, it's going to be known by the people who are alive then who you are, how you lived your life. Your future relatives are going to be talking about you and about how you lived. <laughs> and that you lived. And they're going to talk about how you lived affected their life going to happen. Do you have a vision of generational obedience, a legacy? I, I, um, I can just tell you that I think my father did, and um, I don't know about before that. I'm not sure that the generations before that thought this way, but my father did. And um, he said something to me once that I've decided to not share it with you um, for personal reasons. I'm just going to tell you that he said something to me at one point that had been prophesied over him about me. And he didn't have to share it. And it was for him, but he shared it with me. And it went down into my soul. And it impacted me. And it changed me. And it will forever change me. And it will forever change the way I think about my kids. It's this legacy. And, and those words, it's got just a huge impact. That was something that happened between me and my dad. And you might say to yourself, you know, I wish I had that kind of, you know, Spiritual heritage backing me up. I wish you did too. But listen, 
you can be the first. Somebody has to be first. It could just as easily be you. And it needs to be you. If, it, if, you're not the, if you're not the second, third, fourth, or 15th, you need to make sure you're the first. Love your kids enough to do that. Get a vision of generation. It's the greatest and most significant thing you can do with your life is impact the next generation. It's the most significant thing. Well, how do I begin to work towards that? Okay, first, pray for a vision like it's, pray for, pray for this vision like it's all up to God. That's how you pray. You know, make this ish, issue of generational obedience the focal point of your prayer life. You say, you know, because there's nothing more important than praying about the impact that you have on the next generation. It's just, it's more important than, than your health. It's more important than your career. It's more important than the crisis you're going through today. That's going to pass. But this will impact generations. Um, the, the life of your loved ones. Notice, notice this in Jeremiah 29, verse 12. It says, you know, I know the thoughts I think towards you. Verse 12. Then you will call upon me and go and pray to me and I will listen to you. That's a picture of prayer. Notice there's three things going on there that are going to describe this prayer. First one is the call. God says, you will call upon me and go and pray to me and I will listen to you. You're going to call on me. And we live in this day when you know, not a lot of people are very intense about prayer. This calling on the Lord. There's a lot of people, you know, we tend to pray these easy, almost rote prayers. There's something that goes on there, but we can kind of, we can be kind of become creatures of habit. You know, we say these things and our minds aren't always, and our spirits aren't always plugged in. We just, and, and, and there's, you know, we're praying, but we're really not allowing the Holy Spirit to grasp the fact that the significance that, that we're able to boldly come before the amazing, almighty, and all-powerful God. Scripture, then you're going to call upon me. This is a picture of intensity and, and, and fervency in prayer. It's not, it's not just the idea of saying words, but it's our passion and our intense heart. We share it with God. James 5.16 says, The effectual fervent prayer of one in right standing with God avails much, a whole bunch, when you pray. praying for your family, for your, their salvation, for your loved ones, your generation. Then God says, you call upon me and go and pray to me and I will listen. Here are the ideas, privacy and prayer. Now, I'm certainly not opposed to corporate prayer. I do it. I mean, it's part of my ministry role. I do that. But corporate prayer is never supposed to be anything other than the overflow of what's going on in a private prayer life. It should be the outflow of an already existing prayer life with God. I think sometimes we can allow corporate prayer to substitute and take the place of, you know, us getting alone with the Lord. You know, and if you read through the scripture and you see the greatest prayers that are written in the scriptures, we're pretty much, they're pretty much all private prayers. They are. So get to a private place, Matthew 6 says, to shut the door and, and, and get alone before God and call out to him. It says in the text, you'll call upon me and go to pray to me in some private place and then, and I will listen to you. Maybe you don't know this, but there are people, and I'm one of them occasionally, who come into this room when it's empty and they come in here when it's alone and they wander up and down these aisles laying their hands on the chairs. Lord, you know who's going to be sitting in this chair on Sunday morning and I don't know what's going on there, but be his high tower. Protect him. 
Fill him with life. Encourage him this moment. And when he gets here, Lord, break the bondage of whatever's going on that would lock up his heart and his mind and let him not be able to hear what your spirit's saying to him. Fill him with life or her. And they wander through here. And when they get all done, they, 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 this isn't, there's nothing mystical and magical, but they say, Lord, there's people that live that direction. You see, that would be west. Lord, the people to the west, gather them in. Not to make the church bigger, but to bring them to a place where they can hear the Spirit and be touched and changed by your heart. And the people to the north and the east and the south. Am I getting these right? <laughs> and they're praying. And they're praying. These people are praying. And, you know, that, that, that Lord, you, you would put people into fellowship with your saints so that they can grow in your relationship with you. And I'm here to tell you how faithful God is to listen to those prayers. He honors our prayers. I will listen to you. I hope you never get past that. I hope you never forget that God is listening to the things you say. If I was to um, make an announcement right now that, okay, after church, just in case you have a little extra time, Billy Graham's going to be sitting in the cookie room. And he asked me before church, he said, hey, I'd really love to get to know a few people in the church and um, have a cup of coffee and find out about them and pray with them. Would you mention it? If I was to say that to you, I'll bet a significant number you would want to go and meet Billy Graham and sit with him and he'd pray with you. Right? Who's Billy Graham? I don't know. So, um, I mean, you would. The thing is, I would go. In fact, I probably wouldn't tell you so I could have him to myself. Why wouldn't you go and sit with someone godly like that who would listen to you and pray with you? Well, put Billy Graham aside. The almighty creator of the heavens and the earth is sitting and waiting for you right now and any time to hear your part. We just skip past Billy. So pray for the vision like it's all up to God. And then two, work for the vision like it's all up to you. Pray as if it's up to God. Work as if it's up to you. Because after we get up on our knees, there's some things we got to do, right? Some work to do. Jeremiah 29, 13 and 14. We're just wrapping up here. We're just ending. It says, And you will seek me and find me when you search for me with all your heart. And you will seek me and find me when you search for me with all your heart. This, this thing of following the Lord is just not a part-time thing. It's not something you can do in your spare time. Seeing your vision... Your God-placed vision realized for your family isn't going to happen if, if this effort is competing with 15 other hobbies. It just can't. You have to be focused on this a lot of time and a lot of effort. God says, if you seek me with all your heart. And I think God here is making a promise, but he's also talking to people who are marginal on this, you know, people who are... They want God to bless them, but they're kind of a little bit disinterested in, in pressing in because of the cost. God's, because God is giving his best stuff to people who say, God, I, I, I want you and you're enough. Scripture says, seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. Then all these things will be added. He says, verse 14, and I will be found by you, says the Lord. I love that. The fact that you can, be, you, you can find God. Pray for the vision like it's all up to God. Work for the vision like it's all up to you. And then three, rest in the goodness of God. If you've done that, if you've done what you can do, you rest in the goodness of God. Done what you can do for your family. You've prayed and done your part. Rest in the goodness of God. Let's pray. God, I want to thank you this morning 
that we don't have to wait for Billy Graham to show up, that we can just come to the King of Kings in the privacy of our hearts when we make room there for you, Lord. Forgive us when we don't, but that we can come to you, Lord, and that you're faithful, that you're thinking thoughts about us, that you know our situation and you are thinking about our future and our hope. Thank you, Lord, that you're, you're optimistic about our tomorrows, that you think positively about our tomorrows because we sometimes don't, Lord. Sometimes we get so focused on the weight and the what if and the problems that we forget to think that that's not what you're thinking ever about us. Lord, help us to have vision for our families, the things you want to do within our families and give us the faith and, the, and a persistent prayer, Lord, the courage to do our part in that to be the husbands and the wives and the daughters and the sons and whatever, Lord, that you want for us to be. So fill us with life, Lord. And thank you for it, Jesus. Church, I ask that you keep your eyes closed and your heads bowed.